Hello, and welcome to the RamGad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I'm your host, Jason Economou, Government Affairs Director for RAM, and this is my show. Today, I am going to mess with the format a little bit. Usually, I like to put out two podcasts a week. I like to do one general notes from the GAD style update where I tell you all what's going on, and then I like to put out a long-form interview. This week has been hectic, a little bit crazy, and I decided I'm just going to mix the two together and see how it turns out. So immediately after I chat in your ear for a while and give you some random updates, I'm going to roll into an interview with my dear co-worker, Amy. Now, the reason why we don't have either Gina's interview or Kelly King's interview today is because, well, life. So the interview with Gina, I thought, went very well, but we stumbled through a couple of parts there, and she just really wasn't, um, you know, she wasn't displeased, but but she thought that we could have done better as far as the audio, and I think we could have done better. Uh, There were a couple of awkward stages in there where I just kind of blanked out. So what we're going to do is Gina and I are going to sit down again in a few weeks, and we're going to redo the interview. I usually don't do that, but I love Gina, and she made the point that if we do a poor job, it just reflects poorly on RAM. So we want to give you guys good content uh, to, to the best of our ability in a reasonable manner. So you'll get an interview with me and my dear friend Gina Duncan in a few weeks. Um, now the interview with Kelly King. That's a different story. When I get appointments with government officials, sometimes scheduling conflicts arise out of nowhere. And that is exactly what happened. I showed up on Thursday morning to sit down with Kelly King for our interview, and she wasn't in the building. Apparently, she had to attend a um, climate-related event, which totally makes sense. I think that takes priority over my podcast. So that's good for her. And we are working on rescheduling. So hopefully within the next couple of weeks, I will have an interview with Kelly King coming out for you. A couple of other interviews I have on the horizon. So soon I will be sitting down with Tommy Russo, publisher of Maui Time. And hopefully we can get him to talk about his landmark Supreme Court case and First Amendment rights and his experience as a journalist here on Maui and elsewhere. I'm really looking forward to that conversation with Tommy. I think we're going to sit down for that one tomorrow, or actually we're sitting down for that one on Friday. And on Thursday, I am sitting down with one of my best friends, Brendan O'Coleman, who is also in the insurance business. And we're going to talk about insurance. And Brendan, though that might sound boring, hearing a lawyer and an insurance salesman get together to talk about insurance, Brendan is one of the best people I know. I love him like a brother. So it's going to be a fun episode, and it's an excuse for us to hang out together during work hours, which is awesome. So that's going to be fun. You should look forward to that. Him and I are going to get together tomorrow. In the meantime, let me get on with this update, and then I will give you my interview with Amy, which, in spite of the fact that we kind of cobbled it together pretty quickly, it's actually a really nice interview. Amy is a just a splendid person, and I love Amy because she kind of presents herself as uh, a little bit uh, of a rough exterior, 
But in reality, she is just a softy, and she's the best. And you'll find out about that in the interview that follows this. For now, let me get on with my notes from the gad. So as I had mentioned previously in a past episode, I want to give you, the listener, potentially a RAM member, the opportunity to go and testify. Now, there are often issues that arise that... um, Ram takes a position on and we advocate one way or the other. But a lot of times there are issues that are um, interesting or inflammatory that are working their way through the committee and council system that Ram might not want to take a position on. It might not make sense for us to take a position on. But I really think it's important that you, the listener, the realtor out there, you get involved. And you let your voice be heard and and that you participate in the democratic process. So, for instance, today I testified on the issue of creating additional advisory committees to the Maui Planning Commission. That is an issue that they did not vote on yet. This is the the second time I've I've provided testimony on it that, that it hasn't had a vote It will come back. It'll be labeled uh, PSLU44 when it comes back. And basically the idea is to create a South Maui Advisory Committee and a Paia Haiku Advisory Committee. Um, Both of those advisory committees would function much like the HANA Advisory Committee does in relation to the Maui Planning Commission. My position, and the testimony is available online, you know, you're more than welcome to look it up. There's also video from me testifying this morning. My position is and has been that this is antithetical to uh, the goals that Maui County has consistently set out when it comes to developing housing. The number one complaint from folks who are trying to build any housing project, and especially affordable housing projects, is that the process is convoluted and costly and time-consuming, and it's just it's killing new development. And we have been criticized. Earlier today, I was criticized by Dick Mayer. My, my testimony was um, really mischaracterized as suggesting that, that I'm doing this at a, a self-serving goal of keeping the public from, from participating in planning commission meetings and keeping the public from having their, their voices heard. And to that, I say, that's a bunch of BS. I want the public to be heard. We live in a, uh, you know, a representative democracy. We have representatives for a reason. I want you all to write to your county council members, write to your various directors of departments when there's an issue. I want um, people to know that they have the ability to speak out, and I want folks to participate in the planning process when it makes sense. But having an additional regulatory body as an impediment to certain housing projects is a bad idea. It goes against streamlining the process. It will have a chilling effect on on the development of new housing projects, and it'll have budgetary impacts. So, you know, these are four employees that have to go to all of these meetings. Then we, we need to take the time and effort to go through the process of figuring out who is going to be appointed to these various advisory committees. 
um, where the meetings will be held, these meetings will have to be staffed, and there will be no actual obligation for the planning commission to then take the positions outlined by the advisory committees after several months of process and regulation that would be blocking a project from moving forward. So to me, it just doesn't make sense. I'm going to keep on advocating that way. And I will tell you when that comes on the agenda again. For now, I got a couple of agendas that I would like to share with you. So um, just as far as an interesting um, agenda coming up, the Healthy Families and Communities Committee is going to be meeting on Thursday, January 23rd at 1.30 p.m. And on their agenda, they have the election by mail system. They're going to be receiving a presentation from the county clerk on that, which, by the way, if you are not yet registered to vote, register to vote. It's easy. You can do it online. Go do that now. Pause this podcast and go register to vote. You could also check your um, registration status online. So so you might want to do that as well. Um, They're also going to be discussing park assessment fees in lieu of land and public internet access at county facilities. So that's just an interesting agenda. Uh, As far as actual specific items that you might want to be on the lookout for, on Monday, January 27th at 1.30 p.m., the Affordable Housing Committee will be discussing the creation of a repository of information on eligible applicants capable capable of developing and constructing affordable housing units in Maui. So uh, this is going to be an RFQ request for qualifications discussion. Um, In addition to that, they're also going to be discussing funding for a comprehensive affordable housing plan and the creation of a county housing authority. These are really interesting items that could have huge implications on our budget and also our ability to meet our housing needs for the next 10 years. You know, the, um, the number that's thrown around is that, ha- that Maui County will need 14,000 additional housing units within the next 10 years. Um, I believe that, that newer estimates are putting that number closer to 10,000, which it's not getting lower because, uh, because we've, we've built 4,000 houses recently. That number is going down because our population is going down, and, and that will have all sorts of impacts on our economy that I just don't want to get into right now. But the fact that our, our housing or that our housing need is going down reflects that our population is is going to be declining and a population decline has all sorts of negative ramifications on our economy out here on our little rock in the middle of the Pacific. So we should be concerned about that. But yeah, if you would like to submit testimony, you can send it to ah.committee at mauicounty.us. By the way, the calendar and all of the agendas can be found by going through the, the mauicounty.us website. Um, I mean, heck, you might want to just Google um, Maui County uh, Council calendar, and, and that'll bring you to a direct link. So something to do. Um, In addition to that Monday, January 27th meeting, on Tuesday, January 28th at 5 p.m., the Planning and Sustainable Land Use Committee will be taking their meeting to Molokai, where they will be discussing short-term rental homes on Molokai. 
Um, the committee is putting forth a proposed bill that would set the Molokai cap to zero. This is already getting a lot of attention from the Maui Vacation Rentals Association. If you have a vacation rental, you've probably already heard from them. Um, RAM is, is not weighing in on this one. Um, but if you want to weigh in, you can submit your testimony to pslu.committee at MauiCounty.us. Now, beyond involvement through the various uh, opportunities to provide testimony on issues, I also encourage you all, the West Maui Community Plan is still being drafted, still being constructed, and the next West Maui Community Plan Advisory Committee meeting uh, is tomorrow, Thursday, January 23rd at 5.30 p.m. at the Lahaina Civic Center Social Hall. So if you want to see the agendas or if you just want more information on future meetings and past meetings, you can go to wearemaui.org and you can check out the CPAC page. So if you go to wearemaui.org, there's a link to the CPAC page towards the upper right corner. Let's see. Oh, and here's a fun one. Rams Got Talent. Raising fun to raise funds for Rams Presidential Scholarship Fund and Maui on Stage. So that'll be February 8th at 7 p.m. at the Iao Theater. For tickets and info, go to ramsgottalent.com. Unfortunately, I will not be performing this year at Rams Got Talent. I'm sorry. But um, my, my act was deemed too risque. But instead, you will get to see um, many other talented performers, including my dear friend, Brendan O'Coleman, who will be a guest on my show later this week. And um, yeah, that about does it as far as my notes from the GAD interview. Um, my shout out this week goes to my girl, Amy. You'll figure out why once you listen to the interview that follows this. And um, thanks for listening. You'll hear from me next week. Mahalo. I am joined today by my friend and colleague and coworker, Amy Johnson, professional standards manager for RAM. Aloha, Amy. Aloha, Jason. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for, for coming and doing this interview with me. I know it was sort of short notice, so I appreciate that. <laughs> That's okay. I'm here to help. And Amy, for anybody listening who might not be aware, what does the professional standards manager actually do? Um, the, the crux of the title of my job is um, to be the person who is responsible for dispute resolution, professional standards, enforcement of the code of ethics. And the code of ethics is, of course, um, what every realtor, when they become a realtor, agrees to abide by in their professional practices. In reality, my job encompasses more than that, um, working with the board, working with our governing docs, doing a lot of different things, wearing a lot of different hats, but that's pretty much professional standards is dealing with the dispute resolution process. So I know a lot of what you do deals with confidential information, so we're going to have to tiptoe around any sort of specifics of, of issues, professionalism issues that you've dealt with. But could you give us sort of 
maybe a sense of some of the, the issues that you might be tackling when it comes to the code of ethics or professional standards? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, everything that we talk about is, is completely confidential. And really, I, th I feel that that helps realtors and even members of the public to actually use what we have established or what NAR has established as really a resource. Um, a lot of what I hear on a daily basis is um, maybe misunderstandings, um, maybe information that um, you thought the other party possessed and they really didn't. Um, that's why we have different levels of professional standards in dispute resolution from um, ombudsman, which is a very informal type of dispute resolution, on to you know, the full-on hearings. What I hear a lot of and what actually has become a trend nationally is um, issues with not necessarily code of ethics violations, but more agent behaviors. Mm. And NAR has really broken those down into two things. We have the 17 articles of the Code of Ethics. And we also have another publication called The Pathways to Professionalism. Those are things like, um, you know, practice the, the golden rule, uh, return calls, uh, turn the lights off when you're done showing a listing, those types of things. Um, the Code of Ethics is more um, Business-related definitely has some more teeth to it, you know, non-discrimination, your fiduciary responsibility to your clients, um, marketing and advertising. But what we're seeing is a lot more of just complaints that don't necessarily rise to the level of a code violation, but certainly don't match what we should be doing as realtors as far as our professionalism. Mm, that golden rule of just don't be a jerk. Kind of, yeah, really. Um, and it's, um, it's interesting because those are the things that um, we all should be just doing regardless of our profession. And we should just be doing that 24-7, whether or not we're um, in the capacity of, of doing real estate business or not. Um, having said that, as far as code of ethics violations, um, the article number one is um, treating your clients with honesty and actually treating your customers and clients with honesty and understanding your fiduciary responsibility to your clients. That's kind of the um, dump all article. It's the good faith and fair dealing. Y yes, yes. And that encompasses a lot. Um, we also see in code violations, Article 11 is your competency and not on a scale of one to 10, how great of a realtor are you, but are you doing something outside of your competency? Um, are you giving a, an opinion about a plumbing issue when you're not a plumber and you know nothing about it? Um, so things like that. So you're, you're saying that there's been more of a trend kind of nationally and in your own observation 
of issues with people going a little bit beyond their purview as realtors and going outside of their realm of competency, but also people kind of acting a little bit rude or, or unprofessional? Yeah, it's, it's, it definitely. Um, what, what you have to remember with the association is that we are one of very few professions who really self-disciplines. Mm. And because of that, we have really a narrow jurisdiction over realtors, over our members. So we say that it's um, something, you can be found in violation of the code of ethics or um, in an arbitration or a money dispute if it stems from a real estate transaction or something having to do with real estate business. Um, you can't, the, the association I should say, cannot pursue something when I get a complaint saying, this realtor told me that I should um, cut down this tree. And I cut down this tree and they didn't, they didn't help pay for it like they said that they were going to really doesn't fall under our jurisdiction. Um, the realtor, you know, this realtor sold me a bum car mm. and now it doesn't work. Can't do anything with that. Um, so what we find is that, um, you know, should you, have, should you have sold somebody a crappy car? No, but that doesn't really rise to the level of something that we can, that we can do something about. What are the, the instances, the most likely instances, or, or at least most common instances where you and your capacity can actually do something? That, that you can take disciplinary action against a realtor or assist somebody who's seeking help? Um, that really is the, the essence of my job. Figuring that is, out. <laughs> is, yeah, <laughs> truly. Um, I am neutral by nature. The position is neutral by nature. And it's assisting all parties in trying to figure out how we can resolve this. So I keep in my mind, at the back of my mind, how do we solve this? Not um, who said what or what this is about, but how do we move beyond this? And what's the best way to do that? Um, again, with the confidentiality, I can move as, as people give me the permission to do so. Mm. So a lot of what I talk to in an initial inquiry is, um, if you allow me to, I'll call the broker. If it, if it does fall within something that we can do something about. I'm not gonna get into trying to mediate uh, disputes or matters that fall outside of our range. Um, but if it is something that we quote unquote have jurisdiction over, I'll say, you know, I can call the principal broker. Let's see if we can figure this out and then get from the complainant or the person making the inquiry exactly what is it that you want. Um, and sometimes that's the hardest issue. Um, a lot of times people just want to vent. Yeah. That's fine. And if that's it, you know, that's great. If you decide that you want to move it forward, we certainly can. Um, if they have specific things, um, then I have something to go to and try and get a resolution.
That's got to be a little bit frustrating when you're limited. Or does that does that happen? How do you? Let me take a step back. Uh, how do you cope with circumstances when you want to help, but it's either beyond your purview as professional standards manager, or your hands are just tied as far as what people allow you to to do, what actions you can take. Sure, it is. Um, it can be frustrating because what we have is a process and people don't necessarily like processes. Mm. They want to call, make a complaint, get it solved and move on. Um, and just the, the nature of what we do, we, we just can't, can't go in that, in that quick pace that some people like. Um, you know, having said that, what we offer is is a service to our members and to the public on trying to help them resolve something. And again, there's very few professions that you can call an association and say, hey, I'm having a problem. Can you help me out? Most associations are like, yeah, you know, maybe go to the court. Um, and, and we certainly don't do that. That is a good point. There's not a lot of um, associations that also serve the consumer as well as the members uh, to the same level that, that realtors tend to. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it just really becomes a, um, an education process. Finding what somebody wants, what will resolve it for them, may or may not be something that we can provide but how our process also works is through ombudsman, through mediation, um, the parties are in control of their resolution. We can't, um, as an association, if you say, um, Amy has violated Article One of the Code of Ethics and she owes me a thousand bucks. We don't do that because we treat code of ethics different than money. And code of ethics and money is never the same. In ombudsman and in mediation, the parties can set their own parameters. So really everything, including the kitchen sink, is on the table. And if that's what helps everybody feel satisfied, or at least gets, gets everything resolved, that's the best way to go. And we definitely, from NAR down, that's what we really try and uh, encourage is ombudsman mediation um, because once you get to a hearing, a code of ethics violation is just that with um, some type of discipline, but that never, the complainant never really sees any of that. Mm. And with arbitration, it's a dollar figure period. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you mentioned too was that your job you wear a hat that deals with forms i was uh surprised at how many governing documents and forms that ram has <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're we're very um we're very form happy um i think that um over the years we have um accumulated forms and accumulated layers of forms and um, governing documents that frankly at this point are are not 
um, meshing well. Mm. You can find in our current set of governing documents, you can find a couple of different answers depending on, what on which governing doc you look at. So we're actually in a process right now. Uh, the association has a governance task force um, in looking at all of our governing documents and trying to um, meld them or meld them into one document that you can go to one place and find one answer instead of going to four places and, you know, sometimes finding four different answers. Yeah. Do you have any good examples of, uh, of annoying things that you've come across in, in your day <laughs> looking at these forms? Um, gosh, it's just, um, we have, um, the bylaws in our governing documents is really the top. You have to go through the bylaws. Um, currently, we've got a lot of um, policy and procedure stuff in our, in our bylaws that don't really make sense. Bylaws are supposed to be kind of overreaching, vague, and then you've got policies and procedures underneath. So we have some um, policies in our bylaws um, that talk about what different board responsibilities are or different officer responsibilities. And when you go into financial policies, um, it may say something totally different. You know, oh, the treasurer does this. No, the chief staff executive does this. And then you can go into the leadership manual and go, oh, no, wait, that's the president. So it's just, it's, I think it's just a lot of years of changing one document and not changing all of them, which mm. is, you know, which is nuts because you can't, you shouldn't have to go um, look at 20 different documents to make one change. How long have you been working for RAM? Oh, goodness. This February will be my, f the start of my fourth year, fifth year? Yeah, my, yeah, four years in February. What's, what's your favorite part so far? I'm not going to ask you your least favorite, so don't worry about that. I'm <laughs> just going to ask you, what, what do you enjoy about it? Um, what I really enjoy the most is actually being a service to members of the public or our own realtor members in solving something. Um, the dispute resolution, you know, who doesn't feel good about helping somebody um, get something done or stop an annoyance or an irritation or, um, you know, just make people feel better. That's really, that's really my favorite part. My least favorite part is the governing documents. <laughs> but that's, that's going be, um, to be done here relatively soon, and that's going to be wonderful. At the end of this interview, I'm, I'm gonna, I sprung on you that I was going to ask you five questions. Mm -hmm. I'm going to add another question to that, and I'm going to give your, your subconscious time to think it out. And that question is going to be, what is one thing that you want all of our members, our realtors, to know? And I'm sure that you've got a lot of things that you wish all of the members knew, but, but we'll, we'll wait until the end. I'm just giving okay. you a heads up. Okay. One of the things that I love doing in these interviews is taking a deep dive and learning about people's pasts and learning about <laughs> their decision-making process and how they came to be the people that we all know and love today. I did this with David. Um, we learned about his, his affinity for um, musical theater as well as his affinity for board games. Uh -huh. let's, let's, get, let's take the Wayback Machine and, uh, <laughs> and find out. Amy, where are you from? Where, where did you grow up? 
I grew up um, in a small suburb outside of Toledo, Ohio, Sylvania, Ohio, affectionately the uh, armpit of the universe. And it was, um, you know, looking back on it, it was a very idyllic, um, sheltered upbringing. Um, but it was great. You know, you ride your bikes around the neighborhood, you have the community pool, you, you know, run and play and hike in the woods and, you know, just all kinds of cool stuff. How was it sheltered? What do you mean when you say sheltered? Um, it was probably a, you know, an upper middle class suburb. Um, there was no diversity in our neighborhoods or in our schools. Um, getting into um, college and the real world, so to speak, was really an eye-opener for me because I did not grow up around or have much contact with other religions, other ethnicities. Um, yeah, so it was, to this day, I'm just amazed when I look back at how much I didn't know about the world. What were, what were some instances that were, were really big to you? Like, for instance, when I went to college was the first time that I learned that I might be a minority. <laughs> you know, because in New York, I knew that I was like darker than a lot of the kids, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't Hispanic or black. And, you know, it, it was sort of, everybody was just kind of like, oh, he's just, you know, just some European descent, whatever. Nobody made an issue of, of me being anything other. And then when I moved to South Carolina, then I, I realized, oh, there's there's a whole uh, spectrum of hate out there. So so, <laughs> <laughs> what was what was your um, big moment of aha? Um, I don't I I can't pinpoint an exact moment, but I remember just constantly just falling over myself in college, coming across. Um, you know, like talking to a fellow student who is black and thinking, God, this is great. You know, I really like this person and not even understanding that I was saying things that were completely wrong. Mm. I just didn't know. I'm like, oh, this is great. And I'm talking to them. And, and, and I actually do remember um, having a conversation with somebody thinking, oh, this is great, whatever. And later having somebody from that class come up and go, why did you even say that? And I can't remember exactly what it was. And even at the time, I didn't know what it was. So I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, you were just talking to that black guy over there. You don't say that. And I was like, oh, you're kidding. Yeah. You know, and it was, you know, totally socially inept when it came to understanding any kind of diversity because I just didn't have it. Yeah. And that and it was mind boggling with somebody who thinks of themselves as relatively intelligent to be smacked in the face with, you know, you are an idiot. And that that was really what came from that. And then I went through the period of, OK, what do I say? Because I obviously have no idea. And then just going, OK, well, I guess you just go out there and trial and error and try and figure it out. So it was weird. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think people still 
in in this day and age where we have so many more representations of of people of color but also just relationships between everybody of all different types on television and in media and still that initial exposure from when you're a teenager going to college is is just earth-shattering and mind-blowing for a lot of folks and I, I have plenty of people that I know who have much worse stories about sticking their foot in their mouth, saying something terrible that they didn't even know was terrible. Yeah, uh, it's it was um, yeah, it was very eye-opening. That's it, it's relatable. It's it's very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> is the thing. What did you study in college? Where did you go to college? Um, I went to. I originally went to uh, college. Bowling Green State University, which was about an hour away from where I lived. Basically, just a bunch of, you know, kids from high school were like, we want to go there so we can live in the dorm. And it's, you know, kind of close. And, you know, we weren't very adventurous. Um, my father ended up getting ill. Um, so after two years there, I transferred back home and ended up graduating from the University of Toledo. Um, a business, business degree. Um, marketing was what was your choice in, in getting a business degree why why did you pursue that route or marketing um, really back in the day it was let's go to the guidance counselor and figure out how I can get out of here you know in four years or I ended up doing it in four and a half years um, I just, I took business classes because that's just, I didn't have a, um, necessarily a, a creative bent or anything like that. Um, but, you know, it served me pretty well. It's a good general education and... It's a practical education too. Yeah, practical. And, and marketing has always, sales and marketing has always interested me. So that was, that was kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's useful. I got to tell you, I, outside of cocktail parties... That one paper I wrote on Hemingway being gay is it has not really served me. Like it's it's just you know it's like why is that? Being an English major makes you really good at cocktail parties, and beyond that, not so much else. Like I really could have used some some business education because man, I didn't even know anything about credit by the time I graduated. <laughs> So yeah. I commend you on that. What did you want to be when you grew up, when, when you were little, Amy? Um, when I was little, I wanted to be a lawyer. Really? Yes, I wanted to be an attorney. It's yes. fascinating that you find yourself in a position where you serve a lot of the same functions as people go to an attorney for. That, that is kind of interesting. I've never really thought of it in that way. Yeah. But... Um, my family used to say, my dad used to say that I should be an attorney because I can just fight something to death and, you know, turn around and fight it the other way to death if I, you know, based on my whim. <laughs> so maybe it was kind of ingrained. Maybe what it was just because I was a pain. Oh. Um, uh, my dad was in construction management. Um, he started out in the trades. He was a carpenter and then worked his way up into management. Um, my mom was a travel agent, and in those days, um, being a latchkey kid was uh, not really the norm. Oh! But you know, most of my most of my um, friends growing up, their moms were stay-at-home moms. Um, my mom was uh, a um, 
a professional. She was she was definitely ahead of her time. Yeah, as as a fellow latchkey kid, I I think that you got it better than the stay at home mom. And I just say oh, that yeah. because I didn't get enough hugs, so it's sour grapes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my sister and I have that conversation a lot about the uh, um, our imagined um, slights because our mother worked, but uh, she was a crazy independent woman, and she gave that to both my sister and I, and that served us very well. What does your sister do now? Uh, my sister, um, who I love dearly, I hate her desperately, she uh, just retired. She was in... Um, uh, healthcare consulting. She was a CPA and she worked her butt off for years and years and uh, is now retired and spending the winter in Costa Rica. That's pretty nice. Yeah. That's pretty nice. Somebody's I mean, got to do it. You live on Maui though. That's true. I, I rarely find myself getting too jealous of, of anybody else um, living on Maui, especially like my brother lives in Oregon and if I'm ever feeling down, especially this time of year, I just call him and ask him what it's like outside. Right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And, and really, their home is, uh, they live outside of Chicago, which is what they do um, in the summertime, which is great. But in the wintertime, absolutely not. Did you play any sports or anything like that as a kid? What were, what were your hobbies? Oh, I have absolutely no grace. <laughs> yeah. No coordination. Um, I tried playing softball. And uh, that was not not real good. I was not a strong player. Um, the a story that I have was um, when I was little, my mom had me in jazz classes and ballet classes and all different kinds of um, dance and form and all of that. And I was always so proud of that because I'm like, gosh, my mom must think I'm really talented because she's got me in all of these dance classes. And my sister, um, who is five years older than I am and hated me until I was a teenager, um, informed me one day that it was not because I was so talented, it was because I was so awkward that my mother was trying to give me some kind of coordination and grace. And I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. You know, bubble burst, but it was, you know, it was fun. That's what siblings are for. That's right. Yeah. yeah. My my brother is six years older than me, and it's the same thing, where it, it was as though he hated me mm -hmm. up until at least when you were a teenager, you guys got in, in sync with each other. Right. I don't think it was until maybe I was in college or, or after I'd finished college and I was in law school, I had to do something that he hadn't done first before he really started respecting me. Ah, yeah. there you go. The going to law school thing was probably what, what solidified him seeing me as a human being. And then, because <laughs> he hadn't gone to law school, so, so it was like, oh, damn, he knows something I don't know. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's how siblings are. Mm -hmm. That's good for you. Once again, like being a latchkey kid. Absolutely. Less hugs, but it makes you stronger, it makes you tougher. Yeah. More, um, more able to to adjust right yeah. and now we're you know the thing i don't know if it's like with you and your brother but now we you know can finish each other's sentences we just are that kind of close yeah. yeah yeah we're pretty close like that I, I think so not not quite that close we've got time yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go yeah it's, it, it takes some some further development so you're in college in toledo mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. finish up 
-hmm. where where does the world take Amy Johnson? Um, really, the it was just kind of passed out without me really knowing it. Um, I do believe that if you really just think that something is going to happen, it will. Um, I graduated college with a marketing degree, and I don't know, maybe two months after that, got a job as a marketing rep um, for a company that was then called TRW. Uh, they were a huge company that did defense contracts, all, all kinds of things. They're now... Um, Oh, it escapes me. Um, but one of their divisions was information services. So I actually worked for uh, their credit reporting division, oh. the old TRW credit reports. And uh, I worked there for 11 years in total. I did credit reporting for about eight years in the day that you would actually go out and ask banks to please give you the information that you could put in your database so you could regurgitate it out in a credit report. Um, from, then I, from there, I moved down to um, Dallas and uh, worked for their information, their other information services, which was database marketing, target marketing, which was what we called it back then. Hmm. Yeah, so, so it was really, it was cool. I mean, it sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. um, the, that's a pretty big jump from, from Ohio to Dallas, as far as culture shock can get. Um, well, it was, again, a little bit of a calculated move. I had, with the company, um, uh, taken promotions in, I lived in Columbus for a while, in Cincinnati, um, which is... As you know, one of my favorite cities ever. Cincinnati is um, a, a surprisingly great city. It is a great city. Yeah. It is a great city. I, I had only, for, for anybody listening, I, I visited it in my capacity as GAD just this past year. And you had all of these, you got super excited when you found out I was going to Cincinnati and you told me all these great places to go. Mm -hmm. what, what, what's your favorite spot in Cincinnati in case anybody's planning a trip or looking for their next vacation? Um, the thing that I like about Cincinnati is it's, um, the downtown area is old compared to the Midwest, and they've got lots of little neighborhoods. Yeah. So um, Mount Adams is great. They have a, a Beaujolais festival there every year, which is, you know, something cool. Um, over the Rhine, another little area. We just, when I was there, it was just so much fun. You, there was always exploring and something fun to do. Yeah, I yeah. think it took a, a bit of a dip for a while, and now it's it's one of those cities that's on the rise again. Um, you know, it's being rediscovered, and, and you have the, what do they, they call them, the, the urban explorers, where you, where you have people who are moving from the suburbs, infusing the, the center again. A um, little bit of gentrification, but yeah. for the most part, it's, it's nice. You know? Yeah, I just, I loved... Um... I loved walking from my apartment building down to the square where you could still get, you know, the guy hawking the newspapers on Sunday mornings and you could go grab the newspaper and get your coffee and your bagel or whatever. And yeah, it was, it was a neat city. Um, but Texas was kind of my ultimate goal because my sister had moved down there. Oh, I yeah. didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. So she was there and I was like, hmm, I like Texas and I was not... Um, um, wanted to get out of the Midwest. 
I bet. I yeah. feel like that's, I, um, I've met lots of people from Ohio, an exorbitant amount of people from Ohio. And it, the number of folks from Ohio that I've met traveling around the United States convinces me that Ohio must be emptying out. <laughs> because so many people, especially like Charleston, South Carolina, and all over New York, you just run into these these Ohio refugees everywhere. Um, I, is there something wrong with Ohio, or is um, it just kind of boring? It's it's boring. That's kind yeah. of what, yeah. That's what I heard. Yeah, it's boring, and you know, Cincinnati is is just um, it's hilly and and beautiful country. You know, Upper Ohio is flat and desolate, and you know crappy weather six months out of the year mm. um, and just um, yeah there I just felt like there was a lot more to the world so Dallas was a little bit of a of an improvement a little bit of oh, a difference. Dallas was great I love Texas you, you kept on doing the credit reporting work mm -hmm. and what what was the next evolution of Amy uh, the, le the next evolution of Amy was moving to Maui and what brought you um, here it was well, I think because I had traveled here when I was younger, you know, my mom was a travel agent, so mm. we were very lucky. We did a lot of traveling, and my, my sister and I still have the travel bug. Um, but when I was, I think the first time I was in Hawaii was maybe when I was eight, and I was like, hmm, Ohio, Hawaii, yeah, I think I need to live in Hawaii at some point. And, um, just at one point, um, being down in Dallas, my sister and I came here for a week's vacation and I went back to Dallas and went, this is crazy, I'm going. And just, you know, left the corporate job and um, much to the chagrin of my parents, but I was like, no, nope, not doing it, I'm gonna move to Maui, done. And how quick was that? Oh, probably, uh, uh, like six months. That's that's a pretty fast turnaround. Yeah. Well, I had to I had to do the cat thing. Mm. I'm a cat person, right? So I had to bring the cats over, and back then it was a huge process. I think it still is, but it was you know months getting that stuff done. How many cats did you have? I brought three over here. Yeah. Lucky cats. This. <laughs> yeah, it, it was more expensive to move my cats than anything else. Yeah. But what do you do? Did you have a plan when you when you got here? Did you did you have a job lined up or no. anything? No, no, it was you know I'm truly one of those people who's like I'm going to move to Maui and it's going to be lovely, and you know and it ended up working out fine. What was that first? Uh, how long did it take you to land on your feet, like to to find a job, find a place, all that? Um, not long at all. Um, I moved here with my then boyfriend and we had rented a condo for I think three days and by the end of the three days we had found a place to live and um, he had found a job and I was I had I had actually found a job by then so it's you know it's the true thing that if you're you know Maui loves you or spits you out yeah. it really um, she embraced us and we were just like Done. How do you figure Maui out of out of the islands? Um, I think I liked it the best. And what was what was the appeal? What was Maui like for for young Amy coming here? 
Um, you know, it was wonderful. We lived um, down in down in Kihei on Halama Street, which is just like the greatest street ever. And um, it was just what I wanted, being by the, being by the beach, hanging out, um, just relaxing, not, um, you know, none of the corporate stuff, threw away the pantyhose and the, you know, and the, the, uh, the suits and all of that. Um, it was, even in the short time that I've been here, I moved here in 98, um, so much has changed. I mean, there were not all of the lights up and down South Kihei Road. It was still, um, you know, kind of a, kind of a country feel. You and I, yeah, I, yeah, I do, I do. It makes me sad with, with how, um, how congested things are. How did you adjust? Did you have issues when it when it came to culture shock coming out here? Yes, I've I try I've tried to be very cognizant since my early days of complete ineptist to um, you know meld with my environment. You know, when in Rome, kind of thing. Um, so I embraced that, and I was quite happy that I wasn't seeing a lot of blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white people running around. Um, I liked it. You know, like you said, you know, when you kind of figure out you're in a minority, it's like, hmm, interesting. And for me, it was a great learning experience because I had never really been in that situation. Um, I had huge road rage. <laughs> <laughs> You know, coming from coming from Dallas with you know six lane highways and everybody going as fast as they possibly could. Um, the my first job was in Lahaina, so I drove the Poly, and um, yeah, I could not get over just a one lane, you know, in one direction. That was my biggest thing to overcome. Have you gotten better with that? Yes. Yes. Good. <laughs> We're all happy about that. I don't really believe you, but I'm happy that you think so. That's good. You know, that, that probably means something. When was your introduction to the real estate world? Um, interestingly, the place where we had rented on Halama Street was owned by um, some folks who lived in San Diego, and they had started acquiring properties to rent. And um, they approached me and said, hey, what do you think about getting into um, managing these properties for us? And I said, sure, what the heck? So I kind of did that part-time for a little bit. And then with the more properties that they acquired, it just made sense to do that full-time. Um, and we just kind of, I just kind of built that thing up between them and another partner that they had just managing all of that for them, um, all without getting a license, which was legal because it was just one owner. But, um, uh, you know, eventually I decided, you know, I better get my real estate license and figure out exactly, you know, what I'm doing and what I should be doing. So you too are a realtor. Um, I had a real estate license. I did not keep up with it. Um, but yeah, I was, I was a realtor. And I was, um, when I branched out and decided to expand the property management, then you 
by law, you have to get um, a brokerage firm, and you have to, you know, do do everything, um, do all the bells and whistles. So I did that and um, went with a firm and did the property management for a while, and then kind of anybody who's in property management, it's a thankless, thankless job, and burned out on that after, I don't know, I guess about nine years or so, and then went on to do other stuff. What are, God, you must have some pretty good horror stories from, from your nine years of doing property management. Yeah, and, it, and they were a lot of non-conforming units, uh, so it was a, a constant challenge. You know, I, I just, I have complete respect for people who do the property management side of things because it's just, it's difficult. Yeah, I bet. I, anything, what's the weirdest thing that you, you had to deal with in property management? Oh, just, yeah, I, you know, we had a, um, a tenant who um, was a kind of a, a special tenant that, had, that we had put in under a program of um, people with mental illness. Mm. And um, he had gone off of his meds. And that was tragic, but very strange. Um, you know, having to deal with somebody who's just not there anymore, and you know, wandering around, literally wrapped in like tinfoil, and wandering around the neighborhood and trying to get, you know, trying to get help for this poor person, and you know, trying to protect the property from my owners. That provides some good context as far as what you mean when you say it's a thankless job. Yeah. Because I imagine you probably got yelled at from a couple of different angles for stuff that wasn't your responsibility or your fault at all. <laughs> and you still had to do it anyway. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all have that. We all, you know, yeah, take everybody. it for the team. <laughs> you got to take one for the team. <laughs> yeah. Well, well when, did you, when did you get involved? Um, so you did that for, for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and... I, I pulled up your resume, so I'm, I'm just looking at your, your resume now. Um, I kind of want to ask you about working with Goodwill Industries, if, if that's okay. Of course. How did you, what did you do with Goodwill Industries, and, and how did you get to that gig? Um, it was, it wasn't something that I really, it, it, was, a, it was a cool experience. My job with Goodwill Industries was um, basically this program that Goodwill ran for the state, which was welfare to work. And my job was to go out and find um, businesses in Maui County who would hire people who were on welfare. And there was a program that, that the state offered that would help subsidize um, them employing these folks and try and get these folks off of welfare and into work. And it was working with the businesses and then also working with the clients to get them ready to get off of welfare and get to work. And the obstacles there were, you know, amazing. Mm. You know, people who, um, you know, had kids and, 
you had to find childcare. And how do you find childcare when you're not making any money because childcare is not free? Yeah. Um, and the state has, you know, a lot of restrictions on what you can and cannot do. Um, the one of one of the most life changing moments for me um, in Goodwill is going through some of their um, orientation videos. And there was a statistic that, that absolutely blew me away, that if you um, have a home, if you have electricity 24-7, if you have water 24-7, if you are not hungry, you are in the top 7% of the population in general. Yeah. And that, to me, was mind-boggling. Um, just that statistic, it was nothing that I had really ever dived that deeply into. And yeah. that was very, that was very life-changing for me to just see, it's just, you know, we're, we are so lucky. Yeah, it's, it's easy to lose sight of. I, um, you know, I used to think growing up, because my parents complained about money a lot, mm -hmm that we weren't that well off. And in the grand scheme of things, my family was, was not that well off. But then, you know, it, it's that matter of exposure and seeing how other folks live. And with that exposure, finding out like, oh, there are some folks in this world, in this country, who are just a different level of not well off, a different level of poor. Right. Um, in America, we are so blessed that if, if you're poor, oftentimes it means that, that you have basic cable and slow right. internet. <laughs> exactly. You know, you still have indoor plumbing, you still have access to electricity and heat, you, right. you still have all of these things that, that we have just grown to take for granted. And some other spots in the world, some spots on Maui, I mean, people don't have running water <laughs> right? and they don't have a bed. You know, they, they don't have floors in their house. It's just dirt floors. Right. It's incredible. So, so that's, that is quite a startling statistic though. The, the, if you have any of these things that we all take for granted, you're doing a whole heck of a lot better than more than 90% of the rest of the population. Right. Right. And you know, you've seen that obviously in your work with the Peace Corps. Hmm. And just in travels in general, and it just, you know, I've, I've traveled, I've seen things, I've seen other cultures and other countries where it's mind-boggling that, that people um, do without so much that, that we have. Um, where are some of yeah. the places that you've, you've gotten to travel to? Just because <sighs> it's come up a couple of times that, that you, you do have some travel in you. Yeah, I've got some travel in me. Um, been to been to Europe a couple of times. Um, been to um, did a big stint for a couple of years um, in Central America in in Panama. Um, the helping with the development down there. A um, little bit of South America, Thailand. Um, um, one of the one of the coolest places ever, Lebanon. 
um, I just that that was an amazing country. When were you in Lebanon? Mm, it would have been maybe two about maybe two thousand and six. Yeah, it was cool. That was that was sort of um, just before things got super sketchy again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it cooled down for for a good long while. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it was really interesting. It was I I went with um, friends of mine who were from Lebanon, um, and to see that country, it, unbelievably beautiful country. Um, but you know, driving around and there's bombed out buildings from, yeah. you know, from. A long time ago and maybe not so long ago um, but it was it was such a cool experience yeah yeah and, and how about Panama you, you just glossed over Panama <laughs> completely you you were in Panama for for a couple of years well on and off um, we had a, my boyfriend at the time had the pool business and he was building pools in this uh, development um, in Panama on the Caribbean coast and uh, I was there quite a bit you know weeks or maybe a couple of months here and there um, on and off for a few years and um, just crazy just craziness expound um, you know we were there during the time I don't know if anybody remembers it but uh, um, the crazy expats on the on the Caribbean side, and the the guy who chopped up his wife and um, you know scattered her around. Um, that was during that time. Got to knew him. It was interesting. Um, yeah, like, expat Just, communities tend to be kind of weird. They are a little weird, um, and yeah, and it was just it was definitely people who. Um, did not want the the American lifestyle and were just down there partying and you know um, taking land from the, from the locals and you know doing doing what we do best. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre because we had a, a similar thing in Uganda where there's a, a pretty big expat community. And especially what you find with the Americans is it's like Americans fleeing America because of what they see as, as like injustice, you know, social or, or economic injustice in America. But it, it, fascin it fascinated me that so many chose places like Uganda where there's a legit dictator in place <laughs> where, where the, the inequality and injustice is more, more alive uh, or mm -hmm. at least maybe just as alive, but more in your face there than, than it is here. And yeah, you get some weird folks who are expats because they, they cash out early and they have a good amount of disposable income compared yeah. to the rest of everybody else. And yeah. they like to live it up. Yeah. Or they just love Jesus more than anybody else on earth. And, <laughs> and they, they do not yeah. like to live it up and they judge everybody else who's living it up. And they just, they just you know, uh, have prayer meetings and play settlers. Yeah, I think these people were more on the party mode, but but they also wanted to create the states mm. in Panama, which was like, okay, you left the states because you hated it and you wanted to go somewhere else, 
well, now you found this great little part of paradise that's inexpensive, that the people are wonderful. So yeah, let's start building subdivisions and increasing property taxes and taking away land. So it was crazy. I kind of have a theory crazy. about this. And this theory stems from, have you ever met uh, people of Irish descent who aren't from Ireland, they're Americans, but they really love Ireland. <laughs> like they celebrate their Irish culture all the time and uh -huh. stuff like that. But like their parents were American. Right. You know, maybe their grandparents, they have one Irish grandparent or something like that. I feel like a lot of expat Americans are kind of in that same realm because it's not until after you leave someplace and develop some, some space from it that you can get that nice nostalgia, those those rose-colored glasses to really That's look true. back on it. So, so I grew up with a ton of these kids out on Long Island, the, the folks who are really proud of their Irish heritage, but they completely forgot all of the various reasons why their ancestors fled Ireland. Like right. they don't know anything about the history. In, in Uganda, it was like the 4th of July was this huge holiday for American expats where we'd all go wild and it's like, you guys left for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get that you're, you're, you're looking at the, uh, looking at this in a, with a little bit of nostalgia and, and joy, but you know, maybe, maybe it's not as uh, perfect as you're making it out to be right now because you complain about it all other, you know, 364 days. Right. So, right. It's an interesting dynamic. It's an interesting dynamic. But they, you weren't, you weren't drawn into the, the expat world. I'm, I'm proud of you for not uh, jettisoning and just staying in Panama and living it up. Yeah, it, it was, um, and the thing that I find about some of the expat communities is it's very claustrophobic. Yeah. And, um, you know, my quest has been to see more and explore more, not to get cloistered in with um, pseudo like-minded people. Mm. You kind of, I've seen that in, in some of the communal groups here on Maui too. The folks who have been here for a long time who uh, have too much shared drama. Mm, yeah. and, and with expat communities, it's almost smaller because you get less of an influx of new people coming in with the expats. So, right. so especially the ones that have been in a spot for 10, 15 years and they, they have shared drama and shared exes and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you definitely see that here too. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't for me. And, you know, really, I, I love Maui. It's it's not a, you know, it's not a place that you um, don't want to come back to. It's the best. Mm -hmm. Maui's your home. Do, yes. Are, are, you, are you tempted to leave ever? Um, I'm always tempted to explore. Mm. Um, so I'll never stop doing that. And, you know, probably this will not be my retirement place. Oh. Um, you know, just because of the affordability, which is un which is unfortunate. But yeah, I'm not planning on going anywhere just quite yet. I'm gonna put you on the spot. What do you think we could do about that? Oh, Jason. I get asked that question all the time, and I ask people all the time, and I've heard various answers. Um, you know, th this isn't, uh, I'm not asking you to like, give me major uh, outlines for reforms, but, but just what's your two cents as far as affordability here? Well, I'll, um, I read a wonderful uh, Maui Time article <laughs> over the weekend 
um, where somebody was quoted as saying, you know, it begins with better jobs and, yeah. and that type of thing. I, I do think that we need to reinvent what we call affordable. Yeah. And we do need to have jobs where folks can earn a living. And we need to be cognizant of the fact that um, we need people in service industry jobs, in um, you know landscaping, and and we need those folks, and we have to pay more attention to them. Yeah, um, we're gonna if we're gonna run into a situation where it's gonna be a lot of people going, how come I can't get a house cleaner, or which you know they do now. There's just it's this place is only as good as um, not only the, the physical infrastructure, but the human infrastructure. And we have, to, we have to pay attention to the folks who we need to stay here. Yeah, we need, and we need to value them appropriately. Absolutely. I, I like the way that you put that, the human infrastructure. Um, I, I haven't really thought of it in, in terms of human infrastructure, but that, that's a beautiful way of looking at it. And that valuing folks, because, yeah, we're, we're always going to need that support service. And like anything else, if we look at like the supply and demand of it all, uh, folks look down upon a lot of the, the support service providers that, that we look to, and they don't want to pay them appropriate wages or, or high wages, what would be considered high wages. But we're still dependent on these people. And if the housing goes up, if the cost of the room goes up, then maybe the cost for the person cleaning it should go up too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we are on an island. It's not that people will just have to drive farther in for their commute. Yeah. Like you see on the mainland. We, we have limited geography. Yeah. I mean, my parents commuted for hours a mm -hmm. day. Like, when I was growing up, my dad would, would leave for work at, like, 4 in the morning oh, to, God. you know, just in case the Long Island Expressway had terrible traffic because he worked in the city uh, as a chef. You know, not, not a terribly high-paying job at the time. It wasn't as um, socially celebrated as it is now with the Food Network and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, chefs got it pretty good after, uh, after Anthony Bourdain came out, but, but back then he was just, you know, a grunt worker. Right. Um, so do you know how to, do uh, you know how to cook? I can cook, oh. yeah. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't know a lot of the, the recipes is the mm -hmm. thing, but I grew up, the, the after school ritual was my dad would, would come home from work and prepare dinner and I would, stand in the kitchen with them and help them with stuff or just you know we would talk about our day and um so so some of that rubbed off on me so when i do cook it's quite good um Ooh. i will say but i i don't <laughs> i don't necessarily uh cook that often nor do I, I cook anything that's too extravagant i mean pretty basic stuff like frittatas and and stuff like that um i can make a, a mean vegetable lasagna that isn't really a vegetable lasagna it's my version of it it's good um, cool yeah well I'll make it for you yeah we'll, we'll, we'll have you over for dinner um, yeah but the wages thing is is definitely an issue that I'm concerned of I think we just need more industry here or or better industry options is, is another right. thing I'm, right. I'm scared of I'm scared of some of the the narrative that's being developed around affordability that plays to the fact that offshore people are, are buying 
and not because it's not necessarily true. There, there are folks who are public figures on like Instagram who came here, bought rental properties, flipped them, and they, they either maintain them and are renting them out at a higher price or they sold them and made a bunch of money to buy more properties. And they make additional money by teaching seminars on how to do that. Mm -hmm. Those folks exist, but that narrative of, you know, we need to do something about them is dangerous in my mind because nobody ever really gets ahead in life by handicapping the competition. We need to make our residents competitive with those people coming from the mainland. We need to, to make it so that our residents can create the solutions to, to those problems. We are still part of the United States, so we can't stop somebody from coming here and buying property and, and putting their time and effort into it and selling it for a profit. That's capitalism that's not changing right now. Right. And focusing on, on these problems that we can't really address constitutionally is, is an issue. I think what we really need to do is we need to focus on, well, how do we get better wages for our residents that are here? How do we build more houses so that there's more affordable options for them? Different types of houses mm -hmm. as far as, you know, more diverse options for affordability, you know, either rental properties as well. Um, and how do we bring industries here? Yeah. And, and that's really, I, that is the key because we do have, you know, throughout the state, we have the brain drain. Yeah. You know, people are like, I can't, I can't function here. I'm going to go to the mainland or wherever else. And it's the fact that we have so many different ecosystems and we should be much more sustainable than we are. You know, the fact that we bring in so much food. Yeah. Um, that we bring in literally everything that we need we should be more sustainable. There's, there's no not really a reason that we shouldn't be producing more locally grown foods. Um, things like um, I heard on the radio today that they're exploring on Hawaii Island, doing recycling here and then manufacturing the recycled products here. You know, how wonderful is that? That would be great. You know, so I think there's a lot of, of things that we can do to, like you say, increase industry, increase opportunity, um, and, and really help ourselves. You know, they say, what is it, if we were cut off from the world, you know, or from supply ships, that it would be three weeks or something and we'd all be, you know, like Mad Max. Yeah, I think three weeks is a generous, a very, very generous estimate of how much we have as far as inventory of supplies and also how patient we are with each other, um, excuse me, before, before society and, and uh, all of it breaks down and we go all Mad Max, as you <laughs> say. <laughs> that's, that's really the best, best descriptor. That's what we all fear, going all Mad Max. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to uh, play this thought exercise where it's like, what would I do if I were king? Um, and, and like, you know, if, if it didn't take a long legislative process and if I had, you know, the, the money of all the Saudi princes combined, what, what would I do to, to Hawaii to fix it or, or at least to Maui? Um, and my most, my most recent two ideas are 
invest heavily in the entertainment industry if if I were king because I like the fact that when productions come here they'll spend like two million dollars in a matter of a week mm-hmm. and they all leave afterwards <laughs> that's that's really appealing to me because we have tourists that come and stay longer now and spend less money spend overall less. sure so so the opposite of that is them coming and staying for a real short period of time and spending a whole bunch of money before they leave and if entertainment industry is, is what gives us that, then I would like to see that, more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my other thought, it frequently goes back to education. If I, were, if I were king and had billions of dollars, I would open up the greatest university the world has ever seen in Maui, um, maybe even make it part of the, the UH system, and free tuition for everybody on this island, uh, everybody in Hawaii, and then if you're from the mainland, you're gonna you're getting a, a Harvard caliber education. You're gonna pay Harvard caliber prices, and and see what that does. Because I think when you go to these university towns, especially the most prominent universities, you have the best and brightest of of the whole world, not mm-hmm. just the academic world, but the whole world gravitating towards those locations, and you know it's usually a chicken or the egg thing. It's usually the the industries are there first and then the businesses pop up around them because that's where where people want to be right um, but but I wonder if it could be reverse engineered if you can engineer it so that you have education as the primary driver that industry pops up around especially with stem yeah yeah I think that's a really cool idea yeah I like that a lot I like that too yeah let's let's do that. let's do that <laughs> <laughs> Get on that right now. All right. This this uh, this interview took a weird turn. I hijacked it for a little bit to, to ask you about affordability. I apologize about that. No, that's all right. <laughs> what 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 are some things about you that people don't know? What are your hobbies? What do you care about? <laughs> um, my hobbies. We um, gosh, I'm into fitness. I like to swim. Um, I do some fitness classes, uh, love to cycle, um, yeah, love to be outdoors. I mean, I, you know, I moved here from the Midwest for a reason, and it's not to sit inside and watch TV, um, so I'm always outside. Where, where are your, um, one or two of your magical Maui locations? One of my favorite spots on the island is Ia Valley, um, and then another one is, is Probably that uh, Wahee Ridge Trail. Those are Ooh. those are two very um, meaningful locations for me. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, that's neat. I like um, the the hike that you take down to the lighthouse down past La Perouse, oh. and they've got those two little pools in there that you can go in. Um, I like that. I like the King's Trail. Um, and I am a huge Molokai fan. Um, I still anything, haven't been. Uh, I, I just love Molokai. I absolutely love it. That, just the whole west end of Molokai, that, that's just like, that just speaks to me. I'll book a trip. Yeah. Wow. You gotta. I, I only, um... I guess it was a few months ago now. It was my first time really going on the King's Trail and, and exploring around there. And I loved it because 
I almost got kind of, for lack of a better term, a spooky vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally believe in the mana. You, yeah. You can just, yeah. It, 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 you, you could find yourself accidentally slipping back through time like, uh, like that show Outlander, <laughs> but, <laughs> but a Hawaiian version of it. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's, it's a beautiful feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let me get to, to our questions. Um, I'm, I'm, oh, sure, gosh. I'm sure okay. David is going to get annoyed if I keep you here for too long. you got to get back to work on MLK Day. Um, <laughs> That's <right>. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we're recording this on, on Monday, um, Martin Luther King That's Jr. Right. Day. That's yeah. right. So, question number one, what book would you recommend? Um, one of my favorite books of all time is called a Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. And what, why would you recommend that book? Um, it's just amazingly well written. Um, and it, in essence, it's about a, a man coming to terms with a reality that he had never considered and that he had kind of misunderstood. That is an intriguing description. That should be written on the uh, back cover. Yeah, it, it's just, it's, you know, sometimes when you read a book and it just feels like you're like cuddled in with it and it just, there's like a flow to it. It's very well written. I love the author, but, but this book is, um, just kind of sneaks up on you and you're like, holy shit. You cool. Know? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's neat. I'll check it out. What is guaranteed to make you smile? My cats. How many cats do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I have six cats. And I have a crazy cat lady action figure. What are your yeah. cats' names? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> I have Cooper, Ashley, Katy Perry, Margaret Penelope, Palmer, and Isabella Verna Oda. I like that you have multiple cats with, with two names. Are these like first and middle names or first and last names when, <laughs> when you look at them? They, yeah. They just, they are who they are. But Verna Oda, you, you know that story. She, I don't know if she still does, but she used to work for the uh, PBL, the licensing. Oh. And I would talk to her and I was like, God, that's the best name ever. I need to have a cat named Verna Oda. And it didn't work for the cat, but Isabella Verna Oda worked for it. So there we go. Right on. Mm -hmm. Why cats? What, what makes you a cat person? Were you ever a dog person? Um... Not, not so, I mean, I like dogs. I like all animals. Um, I've always been a cat person. They're like, you know, cats don't have owners. Mm. You know, they have people who take care of them. Dogs are a little too needy for me. Well, that's kind of why I don't trust cats. I, I feel like they, when I had a cat, it was like having a roommate. Mm -hmm. You know, having a dog is like having a child and having a cat is like having a roommate. Mm -hmm. But it, not only was it like having a roommate, it was like having a roommate with a secret life that I didn't know about, probably a sociopath, <laughs> and could certainly kill me in my sleep if I wasn't careful. Like wow. that was that was those the, are dark thoughts. That was the sense that I got off of this cat, and she was a sweet cat too. 
But she also had razor sharp claws and, and very sharp little teeth. So. Right. <laughs> no, I see, I see people as either canine or feline, which no. is funny because I see you as feline. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think people are either canine or feline. Is, 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 is it just a sense that you get or, or is there I don't, like... Maybe it's just because I'm so <laughs> twisted and see everything in terms of cats. I don't know. Are your personal biases, um, do they affect? Like, so do you see me as feline because you like me as a person, but let's say somebody that you don't like as a person, you go home and you're like, that guy is definitely a dog person. <laughs> no, no. I don't think it has the biases in it at all. Mm-hmm. I would still like you if you were, a, if you were canine. Man. That, that makes me wonder, like, it, it's um, any specific breed of cat? Like, like I'm trying to get it at, uh, no, yeah, you don't yeah. go into it that much? Yeah, no, not that much. Did you see the movie Cats in theaters? I have not. Do you want to? Um, not really. I really had no desire to ever see the play or any of that kind of stuff. But I hear it's quick becoming a cult classic. Yeah, I people I, are like getting stoned and going to go going to see the movie and <laughs> like freaking out. That was on. Wait, wait, don't tell me. I read an article and it was somebody who had gone and seen the movie after taking mushrooms, psychedelic uh. mushrooms, and they their description was hilarious and terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't until I read that article that I wanted to see the movie. I, I and, and I immediately like texted one of my, my friends. I was like, hey, man, you want to go see Cats? And, and he his initial reaction was no. And then I sent him the article and I said, look at this. And then he, he said, I just checked. It's not in theaters anymore. And that was, that was hugely disappointing. Hmm. So, yeah. I guess we'll have really? to wait. Really? So you wanted to see it? I did want to see it because another description that I had heard was these guys were talking about it on a podcast and they said the director either should get a Razzie, he should either, or get an Oscar, or he should be put in prison for the rest of his life. <laughs> and they said that they're certain it's one of those three is, oh is what gosh. should happen, but they're not entirely sure which one. And they explained that they, they, like consciously and immediately felt like they did not like the movie, but the fact that they've never remembered a movie more and never um, went to a movie that they couldn't stop thinking about afterwards, like that affected them in that way, made them confused and, and provided them with those three options. Um, and that, that's, that's stuck in my head. And I'm thinking to myself, if this is something that really has that big of an impact on other human beings, Maybe I should maybe I should give this a look see. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It, huh. You're very brave. What I, if it like affected you in some creepy way? I mean, I have been through things that have affected me in creepy ways and it it, it hadn't really done me any harm, mm-hmm. like for the most part. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm, I'm where I am and I'm, I'm enjoying it. So, <laughs> so I figure a movie-going experience can't be that bad, I guess. Let's hope. Yeah. Yeah. I wow. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. That's interesting. And I've seen some terrible movies. And I've enjoyed some terrible movies. Yes, and you are a movie buff. I, I wouldn't go that far. I, but, but I went and saw A Wrinkle in Time. 
that new one oh. with with Oprah. Mm -hmm. And I went and saw it with my wife and and her sister and their mother. And after we get out of the movie theater, we come out, and I was like, "Man, that was great! I really enjoyed that movie." And they they got like angry at me. Like her, my my no wife's way. mother was like angry that I enjoyed that movie. <laughs> She was like, how could you have possibly enjoyed that movie? It was terrible. They had done a terrible job. And she's a huge Oprah fan. So I was, I was shocked that, that she would hate something with Oprah in it. Um, but, but yeah. So, so that makes me think, maybe I would enjoy Cats. If, maybe. If I, if I found a way to enjoy A Wrinkle in Time. Maybe. Um, I can go into things with pretty low expectations. Well, just, and especially really films. Yes, yeah, They're films. just not, they're not what they used to be. No, I'm not expecting high art for, for anything that has CGI in it. <laughs> that's you know? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what, that's why I, I read Maui Time and I like Maui Time, but their, their movie review guy, who I don't know his name, so, so I, I'm not going to, put him on blast but he he approaches every film as though it's supposed to be high art and just of course the joker it, you know like you're just making a weird statement and trying to point out how much smarter than everybody you are by giving joker a, a half a star on your review like okay if you didn't like it but it's exactly what what people paid to go see right you know some movie with a comic book and a creepy character Boom. That's, yeah. that's what you got. Yeah. With some good acting in there. So right. You're right. half a star just to, to make a, a statement about how brilliant you are about film, that you don't like comic book films. Like, okay, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. And, and really, you know, our, in general, our tastes are not that high, bro. Yeah. You know, the, no. the, you know, the art movies don't even see the light of day half the time. So, <sighs> yeah. you know, we are product of our own creation you know we're kardashians and marvel comics yeah for the most part and some of these comic books are pretty respectable i was, I was a comic book person myself I say. <laughs> okay <laughs> i defer all right um what is something that you've changed your mind on i didn't think about this one um, something that I've changed my mind on. Mm. You know, I would just, I, not anything really specifically, but I think just as a product of living more and getting older, um, I have changed my mind on the fact that people change and that there is um, an evolution even within our own lives. Hmm. And that there is, um, you know, the, the leopard can change his spots. I like that. Yeah. I, uh, I had this discussion a bit with Lawrence um, that we need to recognize and embrace people's capacity to change and, mm -hmm. and to change their minds. And I think that it, it ties in with what you were saying earlier in, in this discussion about that exposure to other cultures and other people changing you as, a, as an individual. And I, I think if we get so rigid with people that we don't allow them to be different than when we first met them, 
it, it does a huge disservice to everyone because now we're saying, you know, regardless of what your exposure and life experience is, um, you're not allowed to change or else that's a negative strike against you. You're a flip-flopper or whatever term right. you want to give it. Right. And it's really asinine because we ourselves change. Yeah. And, you know, we're just kind of cutting off our nose to spite our face saying that people don't um, learn and grow. Yeah. I'm always, since I've grown more aware of the change in myself, I'm uh, a little bit skeptical of, of people and a little bit wary of people that um, make statements like, you know, tiger doesn't change its stripes or, or, or stuff like that. You know, people don't change. They are who they are. You know, once this way, always this way. It, it makes me think, that's you. You know, you're that person who, who doesn't change. I shouldn't trust that. <laughs> right, right. That's yeah. not a, yeah. It's not a good Not thing. a good quality, no. Especially now in, in today's day and age where we're seeing so many things changing and the the behaviors and the, you know, I guess the bigotries that were acceptable in the past are no longer acceptable. And, and I want to afford people the opportunity to, to come along with us as we become more, more accepting of others. So, right, so and encourage. hopefully not continue to backslide on some of those yeah. very same things. No, we want to encourage change. I like it. All right. When have you failed and what did you learn from the failure? Um, so this will be a real estate one because this is, this is a pretty easy one and relatable, I think. Early on and as a realtor, I got a listing that was back at that time, I think it was like 1.6 million or something, a big house up in Haiku on a couple of acres. And it was, you know, a great listing. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. Um, just poured heart and soul into it, you know, went through the, the whims of the owners who were difficult and, um, you know, changing f the way the photos looked or, you know, every word in the, the descriptions and open houses and caravans and just, you know, doing all of this craziness. And as in, as we all know, sometimes things are just priced too high and this one was just not getting any activity and going through all of the things that I was taught, you know, sitting down and this is where we are. This is what, you know, the market looks like. We really need to think about, you know, lowering this down, getting, you know, getting this thing sold if that is in fact your end game. And having owners who were just not, you know, they wanted this price, that's what it was. Um, and they ended up canceling the listing with me, which was not a big deal, but I was devastated. I yeah. was, a, you know, I was a new realtor. Um, I think it only had one or two transactions, and um, I, of course, looking at at the potential commission, and just I took it really hard because I just didn't, um, I didn't know what more I could have done, and really felt like it was a failure, um, and my own ego and thinking that surely, you know, I I can convince people to do things, and I can do this, and just really having failed on many levels. And it was actually my broker who was like, oh my God, I'm so glad that they canceled. You should have fired them weeks ago. 
you know, they, they were putting you through so many hoops. I'm glad this happened to you. You should have fired them. Be, be done. And it was a really good learning experience for me to really have the, the self-value and the self-respect to, to understand that, yeah, I, I don't need to do this. Or, you know, this is right, this is wrong, no, it's not me. Um, or, you know, on the other side, admitting that it might be something that, that, that you did. But it was, it was an eye-opener, um, especially in this industry where people tend to um, do things not necessarily that they don't want to do, but tend to, um, you know, try and overcompensate and over-deliver. Yeah. Um, you, don't, you don't need to do that. You need to be a professional, not, you know, not somebody's servant. That is a good lesson to learn. Yeah. yeah. That's an important lesson to learn. Yeah. Now, back then it wasn't so nice. But Are, are you ever tempted to go back into real estate on, on that level? No. 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 It's, it's, a, it's a hard gig. And, it's, and it, it's a lot of work. If it's done right, and if you are truly a professional, and if you take your job seriously, it's a lot of work. Yeah. What is one piece of advice that you would give to anyone listening? Um, I would say that being a realtor, um, you should look to your association as a resource instead of a hindrance. Mm. Um, we've got great staff with a lot of knowledge and a national organization who's got a lot of depth and has really thought things out well. And there's a lot of tools in place nationally, statewide, locally to help members be successful and feel good about what they do. And you just, you just need to Look at, look at being a realtor as um, a great help instead of, oh, I have to do all of this stuff so I can get a listing in MLS. Mm. And w would, that, um, would that be the same advice for that, that question I wanted to ask you as far as what is one thing you want our members to know? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, the, the association is really a great resource. And I think successful realtors do, to some extent, utilize what we've got available. And there could be a lot more, there's a lot more success in when you have the guidelines. And basically, we have the guidelines of how to be successful. Mm, yeah. Excellent. Excellent okay. interview. Thank you so much for coming Thank in. Thank you very and, much. Um, it's been good talking to you, and we'll keep on talking once we get off the air. Thank you all cool. for listening, and goodbye.